Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Zoe Young, who is the author of Women's Work, How Mothers Manage Flexible Working in Careers and Family Life. Zoe is an organisational sociologist, a writer and a consultant. She researches gender work and organisations with a particular focus on women in leadership and management. Zoe founded the consultancy Half the Sky to put research into practice and make an impact on equality. Um, I think this is an area that lots, plenty of us are familiar with. Um, it's emotive, lots of issues around work-life balance, guilt and frustration, and the question is, of, is fulfilment possible? Zoe interviewed 30 women over 12 months, and hope their stories help us to look at these important questions. Um, hi, Zoe. Hello. Um, if you could talk a little bit about your research methods and why you chose them. Yes, sure. I ran a qualitative longitudinal study of women's transitions into a flexible work arrangement. I followed 30 women's transitions from a full-time work arrangement into something more flexible in terms of how many hours they worked, when they worked and where they worked. Now, these 30 women were all mothers um, of toddlers um, through to teenagers. Um, some women were navigating the transition into a flexible work arrangement straight on the back of first return from maternity leave. Others were navigating that transition at uh, a different point um, with more children and for okay. different reasons. Well, the one thing they have in common is is that they all occupy um, managerial or professional um, jobs and positions in large organisations in the UK. And they are at that point in organisational hierarchies when women start to disappear and men outnumber yeah. women okay. on the ladder. So a crucial moment. Yeah. Um, it was a narrative methodology yes. wasn't it could you just explain that a little bit I think that's yes quite interesting. I wanted to place women as as experts in their in their own lives and use their own uh, words to explain their their choices and the outcomes of a year of working flexibly um, the narrative method allowed me to explore issues of of I identity um, to focus on particular experiences that the women could tell me about in in their terms. So one of the themes that runs throughout the whole book is that of women, these women being stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain this? In what ways are we in the middle and what effect does it have? The women in the middle theme um, relates to lots of things. Their occupational positioning in their organisational hierarchies, for one, which is below the, below the glass ceiling and, and off the bottom rung, uh, almost middle management. Mm-hmm. They're also in the middle of their careers, in a way. So these are, these are experienced women who have between you know, 10 and up to 20 years professional work experience yeah. behind significant. them. Significant. Significant. Um, and then the, the third element of the women in the middle theme is around their positioning in the family as the uh, linchpin 
the pivot around yeah. <laughs> all uh, family decision-making, really. I think when I was reading the book, um, I felt there was also something about being in the middle in terms of your feelings and kind of never quite being able to fully mm. fulfil your potential at work or fully fulfil your potential as a mother. And I think there's yeah. something about being in the middle there too. Um, so speaking of um, values around work and motherhood, like the mm. concept of the ideal worker and the good mother, what role do cultural values and expectations have in determining women's experiences of flexible working? Um, a huge amount. <laughs> I think these these women um, reflect a... The time they're living in reflects a, a, a shift from the perhaps the having it all mantra and, and expectation of 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 eighties superwoman urged to to have a career and yeah. a family and to to do it all to achieve it all. Um, the women I spoke to uh, perhaps began their careers in the early mid 2000s okay um between the around 28 to 42 when when i spoke to them and they're living through a time that that places uh, emphasis on women's achievement in terms of balancing their careers with their family lives so re-envisions um women's progress as a as a balancing act and a need to work and a need to have a career and to be able to um, balance the two successfully. That's really interesting. So you don't think that there is this kind of being a superwoman in all areas anymore? It, we we achieve on. by managing it... both rather than excelling in both. Yes, that's very much. It seems quite defeatist in a way. Well, that's my point in the book, actually. That right. this this narrative actually lowers it does lowers expectations it? both of women and of what we as society want women to achieve. So, positioning um, paid work in opposition to life, I think, um, prevents women or anyone actually finding creative solutions to integrate and and manage the two simultaneously they become separate and vying for attention yes that's so interesting um i think the first part of the book is about choice um and Mm. even given all those cultural that cultural framework that we operate in um it's still perceived that women are making choices to live their lives in the way they do um so when they become mothers women choose to work you can't see my quotation marks <laughs> women choose to work flexibly for many reasons um and these include to resolve work-life conflict protect mm. or expand their careers and their professional identities but how much of this choice is actually free oh i would say not very much at all great <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's uh, well, for starters, even the specifics around the flexible work arrangement that 
women were choosing to do is is a choice from a limited menu of options in their organisations. So was that part-time job share? Yes. Uh, so already the, the the choice architecture, if if you like, is is restricted, and uh, in a very practical way. Um, but ideologically as well, there's a there's a there's a problem with with choice in that um, women were not uh, necessarily living the values they. They held about a, an egalitarian partnership, the uh, ability to to create a fulfilling career and and nurture and and, and grow a a loving family. Um, the practicality of 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 living those ideals was was not possible. Um, so we've talked about identity in relation to women at work, identity in the workplace and how we identify with the um, cultural concept of the good mother. Um, but there's obviously also the identity we find in our couple relationships, our identity in relation to partners. There was a lot of interesting stuff in the book about that, but it would be great if you could talk about a little bit. Yeah, sure. It's one of the great benefits of my research method, actually, was to give time and space to talk about women's whole lives not just their lives at work or their lives in relation to their children um, but about everything that was important to them and what was clear is that women's work life choices were were um, the the opportunities they they had to adjust how and when and where they worked were formed in relation to how their partner worked now in most cases 28 out of 30 of the women I spoke to um, were in relationships with men, the fathers of their children. Um, one single parent, one lone parent took part and another was in um, was married to uh, her female partner. So how there's a there's a there's a marvelous um, quote from Emma in in the book who describes um, the gender role ideology with which uh, she and her, her husband um, attempt to share and uh, make, make real in, in their lives. Okay. And she described um, the situation like this. She said, my husband is a feminist, so he doesn't think that we should do different things in relation to our work and our kids. And because he wants to work full-time, he also wants me to work full-time because that kind of fits his ideological model and I have enormous respect for that. But he works away from home three days a week. So when he's away, he's out of the picture. So the reality or the practicality of the way we live doesn't actually make the ideal possible. And this raises the point... That one did stand out for me when I was reading the book. (laughs) It just raises the point that the egalitarian ideals that perhaps couples held were very, very difficult to live. Um, And most women found it was... Well, most women were in the position of, of having full responsibility for family life and sharing tasks with their partner but not 
responsibility. So formulated their work-life um, arrangements and working patterns um, in ways that uh, did not require their husbands to make parallel adjustments or did not expect them to. What I noticed that uh, with the women that I spoke to and how they described their their lives and their sort of couple decision-making around um, how they work and how they shared care is that there were very few examples of of, of um, kind of innovating with the traditional gender gender roles and the division of of care um, there was one example where the husband went part time at the same okay. time there was another when the husband took a year out to look after toddler twins okay. while she went back to work um, there was another example with the uh, lesbian couple of, of both going part time at the same time and covering different ends of the week so that yeah. the sort of institutional childcare time was was limited. So those sorts of examples are, are there, they're in the in the minority. Mm. And it was a sort of express a political decision to to live like that. So okay. the couples had placed great importance on sharing responsibility and both well sharing the rewards and responsibilities mm. of of um looking after children and continuing to develop your professional careers yeah it's um i suppose those three or four examples out of the 30 people that you interviewed aren't many but i think it does show that there is some progress and the fact that people are making these political or these making these decisions for political reasons is interesting it just shows how far away it is from being actually embedded in our culture as a thing that's right it's not it's not embedded and and so what i mean by making a a political decision is that it, it you have to Think about it. It almost <laughs> becomes an anti-establishment an... statement, doesn't it? It's yes. so unusual to do it. Yeah. Yes, it was more common to for women in this study to refer to how fortunate or blessed or lucky they were yes, that to language. have a, yeah. to have a partner that that um, helped out with with the childcare. Yeah. Um, and so you have to be. Uh, okay, so we are quite far away mindful from equality. Of that. Yeah, yes, and actually, over the course of a uh, of a year of talking to these women, I did detect a greater um, awareness of the uh, inequality in the distribution of uh, responsibilities and 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 workload in the domestic sphere. Okay. And of the and of the costs to their own careers mm. of adapting the way they worked, and their partners not making similar adaptations. So I, I described it as a as a rumbling discontent. So by the time I was <laughs> talking to women, um, that gradually increased nearer over the, the nearer the. Uh, end of our of our period of time together mm. there was a definite sense that um, 
women felt they were less satisfied with work-life balance, however Mm -hmm. that was defined for them, but they had a sneaky suspicion that they felt... um, they felt worse about their um, careers and their ability to be the parent they wanted to be than their partners did. Yeah, yeah. The frustration around domestic inequality came out in in sometimes quite hilarious ways in the book. And Mm. and, and one of my research participants described all the myriad ways she'd attempted to make all this domestic work more visible to her husband in the hope that seeing it and understanding the extent of it would... um, either guilt or shame or encourage him okay. <laughs> to take more of the load. And in a in a fit of pique, she This she is the list. Yelled, yes, uh, this yeah, is the list. The list. And, and and to make her point she she said, Look, I I didn't go to Harvard to do your laundry. Yep. Which communicates quite beautifully this frustrated um ambition. Yeah. Um that uh, that is um, just made worse by a domestic inequality that feels impossible to to, to navigate and, and find a way to, to, to um, do things any differently in the couple. I think there's a sense of loss and grief, actually, for yeah. some of the new mothers that I spoke to. I'm thinking of Anna in particular, whose story is in, in the book, who who reflected that the adjustment... And it's a simple adjustment in working hours. Let's remember, all she was saying mm, is well, I'd so like simple. to work three days a week yeah. while my son is little. Yet... Doesn't sound it, like a big deal, but it's actually it became, huge. Absolutely. And she, in her story, um, while well, we sat in a noisy coffee shop with her son in the in the high chair just a few mm. weeks before she was going back to work in her story though there was a real sense of loss of of the end of an era right the job that she once loved she was told she couldn't do anymore mm. because it needed full time it needed someone's attention full time but it wasn't just that it wasn't full time within the hours of 9 to 5 5 days a week mm. it was all the time yes she needed to be at the beck and call of her boss right and her boss continued to want someone to be at his beck and call so to say 3 days a week and fixed hours meant to her her first career was over yeah um, so what what would you say to someone who said, well, that was her choice because she chose mm. to have a baby and so she kind of chose to make that sacrifice? She chose to have a baby. In that particular case, it wasn't very easy for her to, to be, on that, be on that journey, actually. Um, she didn't choose to end her career. No. And why on earth <clears throat> should... <laughs> this be in opposition um so it's obvious that it's not rational choice we're talking about but choice within constraints and it feels very much like the onus is on women to make the right choices does this illusion of choice put added pressure on women to make it work 
It absolutely does, because choice locates the responsibility for that choice on the individual. Yeah. So the women I, I spoke to felt um, a, a very great pressure to make it work. And, and by make it work, I mean achieve at least a fleeting sense of work-life balance. Um, to keep... <laughs> what reward? <laughs> I know. To keep careers on track, to avoid being moved into marginal positions because of your reduced working hours, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, making it work for for women felt like maintaining the standards of professionalism and and the earned reputations and good reputations that they had within their organisations. I thought that was really interesting in the book. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but all the way we almost kind of hide, making it work is hiding the fact that you're doing flexible working in many ways as far as the organisation is concerned, isn't it? Yes, yeah. making it work is making it look easy, <laughs> seem seamless, yeah, and to not disrupt the work of your colleagues by your own work arrangements. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of invisible work that goes into making it work, and it, that is labour that women feel is their responsibility. There's a little expectation that the employer will facilitate a flexible work arrangement above and beyond saying yes or no to letting it happen. Mm. It's seen as a problem, isn't it? It's almost like you're presenting a problem to Mm. your organisation in a flexible working request. And then as long as you can present that problem Mm. with a solution, then it's acceptable that's right. Rather than it being seen as a positive way forward for work more generally. Yes, and it's also seen as a as a employee benefit, uh, almost a, yeah. a perk. Yeah, that's what I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. to rather than a a right, a gift. an entitlement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that adds to the sense of responsibility that that indif- individuals feel um, to to make a success of it. Yeah. Um, so they. They don't necessarily feel they've had a, a great uh, amount of, of of choice in in asking for an adjustment to their hours or schedule or or place of work, albeit temporarily. Um, but having been gifted that, <laughs> mm. yes, um, they feel uh, almost a duty to to make that work with the minimum disruption to anybody else at the minimum visibility um, and one common issue that women experienced was was the inattention to how their workload needed to adjust when the hours they were available um, and the capacity they had to put to their work uh, changed so that inattention to to workload causes some of these um, conflicts issues the need to be thinking about work responding to emails on days that you're not meant to be working Mm. and that is a problem attending to to job design and how jobs need to be designed or redesigned um to be done in in different amounts of time and from different places 
So reading your book, it seems like um, the onus on job design was very much with the women. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. To figure out what happens to that work uh, that would fill that day a week that you're not doing anymore. Uh, where does that go? And often there was no one to delegate to or it was unclear or temporary. And that's why I think the arrangements that were were most successful in terms of enabling women to completely switch off from work on a non-working day mm. were the job shares. Yes, that's not a very common um, way of doing things, is it? No, it's it's not at jobs at those level. There there's lot there are lots of examples of job share in administrative roles, in sort of back office roles, if mm. you like. They were the only examples really where on a non working day because the job share partner was there. Time is another theme in the book. Um at a few points in the book you highlight how the value of time is symbolic and long hours are taken as a sign of dedication and commitment mm. characteristic of the ideal worker um, how is time use bound up with gender identity and what effect does this have on flexible working arrangements just thinking of the job share and how they're almost protecting each other from demands mm. on time if you don't have that is there a stigma to being part-time still Yes, it's associated with uh, a, a lack of ambition, actually. You yeah. know, the, the part-time um, career path uh, doesn't really exist as a, as a norm as, uh, in, in many large organisations. Part-timer is is an insult (laughs) it is is an insult yeah um and and people who people like to comply with the sort of professional time norms in their work environments um and cultures that are defined by long working hours um forms of uh, of presenteeism the jacket mm. on the back of the chair just to show that you are there mm. at funny times um it's extremely threatening to the professional identity of individuals that need to breach those time norms yeah um by by putting limits and putting boundaries around how much and when and where they need to work um, and that was hugely stressful for for some of these women who have built careers and professional reputations by complying with those professional time norms mm. and working the long hours and mm. being flexible to the needs of the organisation and responsive at, at any time. So um, it causes uh, identity threat um, and, and a yes. worry uh, around stigma yeah and judgment yeah um and recognition of their uh potential to 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 continue to develop careers whilst working yeah part-time and and flexibly and this this happens to women more than it happens to men so with everything that we've discussed it's 
clear that there's an expectation um, that women work like they don't have children and raise children and be good mothers as if they don't work. So it's important to go on to look at how we start to address these impossible expectations. So based on the stories of from the women in your book and your other research, what more could organisations do to facilitate flexible working arrangements? Well, I argue that Flexible working is not yet the norm in most organisations. It's not yet the default. And the policy situation is that an individual asks for flexibility, but it's it, the right doesn't extend. The policy is that an individual may ask for a flexible work arrangement, but the organisation doesn't have to permit it. Yeah. And there are there are seven business reasons for that request to be um, rejected. The organisation doesn't need to um, retain that individual in that job okay. either. So as long as they could find a job within the organisation that could become flexible, that um, yeah. is an appropriate um, response to a flexible working request. The experiences of... The 30 women in this research reflected that organisations appeared to have done very little thinking about the different forms of flexibility that were feasible in uh. the jobs that these women did. And um, it was left to the individuals to figure out how to make that flexibility work in practice. So I suggest there needs to be a, a, a different kind of conversation when negotiating flexibility between employee and employer that rethinks the nature of the task, the nature of the of the work to be done, okay, and thinks through in how many hours, um, in what schedule, and from which places that work can be done, and that's a a two-way conversation to try and design and craft a role that can be done flexibly. Do you think that policy change could support that, for example, if being able to relocate someone in any other position in the company wasn't a option, it would almost force that conversation, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Policy is... is it's very loose <laughs> around the reasons an organisation can can give for rejecting a, a flexible working request. Um, and again, it, it places the the responsibility, the onus on the on the individual to come up with the model and the organisation to accept or reject it. Whereas I actually think that needs to be flipped, and the organisation needs to answer the question: Why can't? a role be done yes. flexibly yes and then do something about the answers that's really interesting and then with more presumably that would lead to more people doing flexible working and then with more examples yeah it starts to become more of a norm doesn't it yes the women i spoke to were often the first and only people working flexibly at their level yeah in their organization. that's quite surprising isn't it absolutely um and so they they were very visible role models, mm, which no brought, pressure, <laughs> which brought additional pressure 
to make it work, but also expose the fact that in their organisations, there were no templates for this. No, no. Um, And without organisations actually um, seeking to understand the realities of working flexibly in all different ways, in all different jobs in their organisations, they don't really know what problems to fix, just assume that the individuals will fix them. There are huge advantages for organisations in terms of attracting diverse talent by opening up um, jobs to to forms of flexibility from day one. Current policy uh, only relates to employees with six months yeah. service yeah. Um, and allows them to ask for a flexible work arrangement. Imagine the world where we would see a job advertisement for a good job, mm. <laughs> a high-earning job, um, that welcomed job sharing or part-time work. And the civil service is very is very good at this, and, and some parts of the NHS. Mm. Um, day one flexibility would open up labour market opportunities to to women to uh, with caring responsibilities. It would draw such a wider range of applicants, wouldn't it? And then that's mm. what supports diversity. I think, is that right, that the statistic in the book is that only 10% of jobs over £20,000 a year are advertised as having the potential for flexible working. That yes. really jumped out. At I suppose time, in some ways I was surprised. Yes, I think there's been, there has been some some shift in, in that number. I think it's around 15%. Oh, okay. Now, oh, that's good. Um, yeah, which is which is great, but not great still. Yes, yeah, you would just rule them out, wouldn't you, straight yes. away? In the book, mm. um, you suggest maybe another positive move would be more training and coaching for line managers and HR to build organisational capability and job design and management of flexible working. Mm. Um, are there any particular things that could be done to support line managers to support the staff they manage um well absolutely i think where individuals found uh, an easier transition into a flexible work arrangement it's when they had the full support of their manager to mm. to do that mm-hmm. um in my experience and i've done a fair amount of consultancy work with big organisations looking to strengthen their uh, flexible capability. Yeah. <laughs> and um, managers are often uncertain around what flexibility can be accommodated in what roles. Mm-hmm. And they can be fearful of, of what they describe as opening the floodgates. Yes. Imagine if if more than one person wanted to work part-time, then what? then what would we do? Yeah. And actually, that's the world we need to prepare managers for. I mean, imagine entire teams staffed of people with highly individual, highly personalised work arrangements where the focus is on what that team produces, what the output is, rather than the input of a standardised number of Rather than hours, hours in the office. It. Yeah. it represents a big... A big shift, um, and managers need support in making that shift. Yeah, and it is a big shift, isn't it? Because it's changing what we value at work and um, how mm. we measure value and how we reward yeah. people. 
And women that I spoke to who described their work cultures as, and and indeed the business model, um, as output focused rather than input focused, right. results focused, mm-hmm. with um, little uh, concern about where people worked or how they got the job done, mm. <laughs> but with an emphasis on 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 producing um, results and less emphasis on um, how many hours you put into doing that, these women felt more empowered to manage their professional work life in a way that worked for them. And actually benefits the business as well. It's potentially an exciting way forward on both sides, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. More um, productive, productive, and uh, all the benefits of, of retaining diverse talent in your organisation. Yeah. Because otherwise organisations will just end up with one type of person who operates with one set of circumstances and social supports in their life to be able to fulfil the ideal worker model of... Yeah, it's limiting. 40 hours a week. Yeah. All the time, responsiveness to the needs of the organisation. Mm. The only people that can fit into that mould tend to be um, men with supportive mm. spouses. Um, so it's clear that um, your research obviously focuses on women and mm. women in a particular role in a particular position but it does sound like flexible working could open open the doors for more diversity more interesting organizations more creative interesting output yeah. um so it definitely feels like it's something that should be considered across the board um as well mm. as for women and mothers yeah absolutely there um we're all working longer so uh we will not be able to sustain <laughs> no working uh intensively for seventy five till we're seventy something exactly that um there will be uh, and taking a sort of life course view around um working patterns and and working needs um is really helpful actually yeah <laughs> to think about how um work needs to adjust to to our changing life circumstances my work my research focused on that on on sort of forming families and growing families stage of life and the the disproportionate load on women to mm. make make that happen as well as achieve economically and 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 um uh, move up and advance in their in their careers, but actually um, we're seeing some shifts with um, with younger workers prioritizing flexibility in how much met, when and where they work mm. over uh, reward and right. career development in organisations. It's it, it's extremely important to a much broader range of people than perhaps we imagined when the policy was created um you know 15 years ago or so yeah well that's brilliant thank you zoe um 
Zoe's book, Women's Work, How Mothers Manage Flexible Working in Careers and Family Life, is available on our website. Um, That's bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.